All right, good evening. How's everybody doing? So that's actually a pretty good crowd for uh, being the day before a bank holiday, so thanks for coming out tonight. Uh, so it's been a great, great privilege to be part of the sermon series uh, going, going through uh, 1 Peter. And tonight, uh, we're entering the last chapter of 1 Peter. This is the second to last night of this series, so it's been awesome to hear from all the guys who have, uh, who have been preaching but before we dive in uh, on, our, on our passage tonight, would you please join me in prayer? Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity and privilege to meet freely, to study and learn from your word. I trust that you have prepared the hearts of those listening to receive your word and pray for the discernment of truth and conviction of action as we learn about the mindset and willingness to lead your people. I pray that you will keep me faithful to the truth of your word and where I fall short, Lord, I pray that you would provide, provide clarity and truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you haven't been with us for the last 11 weeks, or maybe you've skipped a couple weeks, uh, we've been studying from the letter of Peter to the early Christian church right as they're kind of entering a time of adversity, suffering, exile, and persecution. Now at this time, Peter is the primary leader of what, would we, what we would consider the Messianic Jewish faith. That's not really the way Peter's story begins. So when we're introduced to Peter in the New Testament, he's one of the first two disciples that's called by Jesus. He's, he's a common man. He hasn't made his way through the professional Jewish schooling. He's there as a fisherman with his brother Andrew, and Jesus calls them to follow him. Peter reminds the church uh, that there's a time of suffering now that he's become the leader of the Christian church. He, he reminds them that's, that it's an inevitable part of following God. And now, as they're entering this persecution, it's almost like I imagine him kind of doing damage control. As they're entering this persecution, maybe people are starting to leave the church. And he's talking to the elders during this passage saying, hey, this is how you lead the flock of God through these tough times and draw them closer to God. So I wanted to to begin today with looking at uh, how the world defines leadership and how we can be unmistakable and set apart from the way the world defines leadership. So what I decided to do is I went on Google and I just did a little image search for current political leaders in the world. So this next slide is the best leadership that the world currently has to offer. They're kind of starting to look, to look alike at this point, I think. Now, this is what they, what they have to offer, but I think we'd be in a lot of trouble if this is the way that God's word told us to lead God's people. Maybe we should just refer to these people as people in positions of authority rather than leaders. But... My, uh, my intent tonight is not to make a political statement. So whether these images fill you with hope, or dread, or maybe even humor, I think we can all agree that this is not the way the word calls us to lead God's people. So I think often we tend to correlate authority with leadership. But just because someone is in a position of authority doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good leader. And anyone who's had a bad boss knows exactly what I'm talking about. 
Every leader has their own gifts, and every situation or problem requires its own style of leadership. And it's kind, of, it's kind of hard to define good leadership. You know it when you see it, but you also know bad leadership when you see it, even if you can't pinpoint exactly what makes it bad. The good news is that whether you hold a position of formal authority or if you have influence just over your household or maybe just your children, that we can look to God's word to see what Christ-like leadership looks like. And that's what we read in the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you open up your Bibles again, we'll uh, go over it. I know uh, James just read it, but we'll, we'll read it one more time. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with the humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So full disclosure, being in the military, it's kind of hard to separate a discussion on leadership with being in the military. So that's, that's kind of what you're going to hear tonight. So being in the military, I'm very familiar with formally appointed positions of authority. I've been subject to both good and bad leadership. And in fact, I can pinpoint times in my life where I've been both a good leader and unfortunately been a poor leader. So as I began preparing for this sermon, I looked at the text and Peter's obvious audience is the church leaders, the elders, the deacons, and those people. So the more and more I studied the, the, the passage, the more and more I saw kind of a correlation to an Air Force course that I attended in 2016. So this was not a normal uh, U.S. military professional development course. It's pretty intense. It's about five and a half months of 16 to 18 hour days, almost straight. And just the sheer amount of information that we were exposed to, it was like trying to take a drink out of a fire hose. So the lessons, needless to say, weren't gentle and very instructional. It was kind of a, let's throw you in the deep water and see how you float. And uh, so we learned through failure after failure and adversity and compressed timelines. But through all the lessons that we learned, we... uh, there was always lessons on true leadership. And they distilled it down to three basic uh, leadership characteristics. It's being credible, being approachable, being humble. So these aren't leadership traits that we typically see in today's world. So why does Peter call us to be credible, approachable, and humble? Something that is so opposed to what we witness in the world how can Peter tell us in 1 Peter to live honorably when people are speaking against us? How can he tell us to be subject to our leaders, even if they're unjust? How can he tell us to fear things that are unfrightening, or not to fear anything that is frightening? And how can he tell us to rejoice in suffering? It makes no sense if you're looking at it through the lens of the world. The answer is pretty simple. Our hope is not of this world. We see throughout 1 Peter 
that he calls us to have a condition of heart and a way of life that responds to adversity in a way that only makes sense if you're 100% sure that there is an eternal reward beyond this life. It's a message of hope, and we have an unshakable, all-satisfying hope in Christ. Secondly, we see Peter call us to live this way because it's the way that Christ lived. He points to Christ as the example in chapter 2. I'll just read it here. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Finally, we have a hope that is not a hope for our reward in this life, not a hope for material wealth, health, or prosperity in this world, but we have a hope because God's glory is our reward. It's a hope that if we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, that we are the eternal beneficiaries of God's glory. And we see this in verses 1 through 4 when Peter says that we, he's also going to share in the glory to be revealed. And in verse 4 when he says, and he promises that we will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our reward and what Jesus died for is to spend eternity with God. And this is why the world is unable to understand the life that we see in 1 Peter. All of our natural desires and everything in our culture tells us to please ourselves. But when you understand that even your reward is not about you, but about the glory of God, not only will you be able to understand the 1 Peter life, but you'll be able to live it. And this is where we find our purpose, because while self-satisfaction can give temporary happiness, Finding satisfaction in the glory of God gives us an eternal joy. So now the question is, how do we lead God's people in the first Peter life? So let's go back to the first of the three characteristics that I mentioned at the beginning. So be incredible. And for this, I want to focus on verses 2 and 3, so let's look at those again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So how can you shepherd the flock of God in the way God would have you if you don't spend time with God and if you don't spend time with the flock? The fundamental part of being credible is living a life that's in line with how you tell others to live. As soon as your followers see you intentionally deviating from what you're trying to teach them, your credibility is immediately lost. So if you want to be credible, be self-disciplined. Be an example to the flock. We see a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 11. As Paul tells the church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul isn't saying this to be proud or to put him above his followers. He says this because he knows that as an elder, people are looking to him to know how to live as God would have them to live. So be disciplined. In order to be this type of leader we see in 1 Peter 5, must start with the leadership of yourself. While that might sound funny, it's really just self-discipline. It takes self-discipline to align your heart, your mind, your body, and your soul with the will of God. Just like an athlete who trains maybe to go to the Olympics, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So, as an example, does anybody know who this, who this man on the screen is? Usain Bolt? So, 
fastest man on earth so far. Um, I'm a close second. Uh, so he's an 11-time world champion, and in 2009, he set the world records for the 100 and 200-meter races at the Olympics. But he didn't accomplish this overnight. It took years and years of going to the gym every day and practicing and dieting and everything to build his muscles to where he could be the fastest man on earth. And the same thing goes for us. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. We have to build our spiritual muscles, and we get bigger, faster, and stronger spiritually when we listen to God and when we teach and learn from each other. So spending time with God, I think that's a pretty straightforward concept. And it's impossible for the shepherd to lead people closer to God if they don't have a personal relationship with God. Now, Peter had this because he was physically with God throughout, with Jesus throughout his ministry. We might see that as an advantage of Jesus' disciples, but God is, Jesus is just as alive and accessible to us today as he was for Peter and the disciples back then. And when I say spending time with people, I'm not talking about fellowship, even though fellowship is great and it's an essential part of building the body of Christ. But rather, I'm talking about discipleship, so intentionally, one-on-one, spending time with spiritual mentors and then passing that down to those um, who we might be able to influence. So how often do we set a time one-on-one to meet with those mentors? Because you're always going to be able to find somebody who is more spiritually mature than you or at least has different spiritual gifts that you can learn from. And then as you grow and as you mature, you can pour yourself into your own disciples. Some of the best ways to teach yourself something because you're going to grow to is to teach someone else to do it. So second thing, be incredible. So be genuine. People are smart, at least most of them are. And they can, uh, they can spot a disingenuine person uh, pretty easily. A shepherd of God sees their role as a call to service, something that they're excited about. Peter actually tells us in this passage to lead willingly and eagerly. We need to lead with a genuine care for people. And besides, what would good leadership even look like if there wasn't a genuine care for people? And we see throughout this passage the image of a genuine, loving leader. It's not really difficult to be genuine. There's things that you can practice even this week in your interactions. Pay attention to your body language. Put your phone down when somebody's talking to you. Julie's like, take some of your own advice. Listen intently. Take some notes if you need to when you're talking to someone. Maybe find out what they need, what they're concerned with. Write it down. That way you can pray for them and then maybe follow up and see how they're doing. So finally, be selfless. The calling to be a spiritual leader is just that. It's a calling. True leadership is not something that's done out of obligation, and that's not the kind of leadership that God wants in his church. Godly leadership is also not done out of selfish ambition, as we see in the text. Spiritual leaders should not be driven by financial gain or praise from men, but simply bringing glory to God. I'd be willing to bet that most spiritual leaders kind of start off that way. They're on fire for God, and after a few months or maybe a few years of carrying people's burdens and maybe dealing with 
seemingly unnecessary drama. They get worn down, and their leadership becomes motivated by something else. So maybe they're, they're motivated, by, motivated by finances, or it feels really good when they get those compliments from their followers, and that's kind of what fuels their leadership style. Or even, maybe they get angry when other people get the recognition, and they don't. So why is that? Well, if you lead according to this word, you might find that temporary happiness. Or if you lead according to this world, you might find that temporary happiness. But it's always something that's going to eventually wither and fade. But for those who lead selflessly, willingly, eagerly, incredibly, they have a hope for an unfading eternal reward that we see in this text. That brings us to our second characteristic. So being approachable. So being approachable means that you have something to offer and that you make it available to those who are under your influence. So I've had the pleasure of working for bosses who had an open-door policy but proved uh, not to be very approachable. So one example is a commander I had a couple of years ago. Nice enough guy, but he tended to enforce blanket disciplinary action for the actions of maybe one or a couple of people. And self-admittedly, he, uh, he had a really hard time with having what we would consider maybe a normal conversation. And so he just avoided it. He went back to his office, he closed the door, and so whenever we saw him, it usually meant that he was delivering bad news. So needless to say, unit effectiveness and morale suffered as a result. I've also had bosses who were so overbearing and abrasive that no one wanted to tell them anything out of fear they would cross them the wrong way. And I think it's obvious that this is not the way that Peter calls us to lead in these verses. True leadership means putting others' needs before yourself and often means sacrificing your time to be the leader your followers need. It's a physical manifestation of humility and selfishness, selflessness. So as we see in verse 3, uh, Peter gives a short description of approachability. Now, while being a spiritual leader, you remain a servant, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. A good leader doesn't see their leadership position as a tool to keep their followers under their heel. But it's a balance as well. Because as a leader, sometimes you have to give that tough love. The challenge is to be firm, but not rude. Have empathy, but maybe not always sympathy. Be confident, but not arrogant. We have to be who our followers need, not necessarily who they want. Not a popularity contest. We see a good example of this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. And I'll just read it here. Um, For though I am all, for that though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all 
for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So I think probably the most difficult part of this style of leadership, becoming all things to all people, is kind of keeping yourself in reign and not compromising your biblical values, which is why being disciplined is so important. So finally, this takes us to our final characteristic, being humble. So Peter really hammers this in in verse 5, so we'll take a look at that again. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we see Peter use this illustration of clothing, because you have to be covered head to toe in humility, whether you're a leader or you're a follower. But also let's not take, take Peter's comments on pride lightly. It's a sure way to get the last thing in the world you would ever want, to be pitted against the Almighty God. Do you want to drive yourself and others away from God? Then go ahead and be proud. But if you want to draw yourself closer to God and lead the flock in the way that God would have you, then cover yourself in humility. And humility is one of those things that can be easy to fake, but also easy to spot. Disingenuous disingenuous humility, something that we see on social media pretty often. There's even a, a term that we've coined for it. Maybe you've heard of it, the humble brag. You see it all the time. So as, as an example, maybe you see on Facebook something like, oh, I'm such a dunce, it's a miracle that I got accepted to all the Ivy League universities. Weird. Hashtag blessed. Or possibly worse, the person who is constantly, outspokenly self-depreciating in an obvious effort to get compliments. Easy to spot. But there's a quote that I love by C.S. Lewis that I think really captures the essence of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, I think in the Christian life, maybe there is a little bit of calling to think of ourselves, to think less of ourselves, because we're, we are, uh, we're comparing ourselves to a perfect God. But Christian humility is not designed to drive us into a depression and it's uh, the point of humility is that it's so ingrained and well-practiced that it's your natural reaction to think of others before yourself. And we see Peter bookend this passage in humility. In verse 1, Peter chooses to set the example of humili- humility to better communicate with the elders. He refers to himself as a fellow elder. Fellow elder. Peter is more than a fellow elder. He's like the Pope would be to the Messianic Jewish faith, and yet he's bringing himself down to the level. But Peter knows all too well about humility and how it leads to God's grace and forgiveness. We read about this in John 21. So we all know that Peter has denied Christ three times before his crucifixion, probably the lowest he's ever felt. Then after Jesus' resurrection, the second time he reveals himself to Peter, Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, with a kind of brokenheartedness, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. But he asks him three times. It's an undoubted parallel to his three denials of Christ. Probably a painful reminder of something that Peter would rather forget. 
This is also his opportunity for redemption. So then Jesus gives Peter a challenge. He says, if you love me, then prove it. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He's able to open chapter 5, humbling himself to the level of a foul elder because he's experienced humility in his own life. And he's had the perfect role model for humility in Christ. The creator of the universe, humbling himself to become a human and face death on a cross. Then we go to Jesus' example of humility. We read in the New Testament and can see astounding humility throughout the entire life of Christ. Probably one of the most outstanding acts of humility from Christ is just before his betrayal when he washes his disciples' feet. We read about this in John chapter 13. After he's washed their feet, he asks them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to watch, wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as, I've, as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we look at the leadership of the world today, and we see leaders who lord their authority over their followers, as if to say, you need to claw yourself up here to get to my level. But we see Christ say, if you want to lead, get down here, get dirty, and serve with me. Before we close, I just kind of wanted to share uh, a book that used to be on there. Either way. So I first read this book in university as I was going through my discipleship relationship with one of my, one of my friends, someone who was far more spiritually mature than I was. And we went through this book uh, called Humility by Andrew Murray. And if you don't have a copy or if you're interested, you can borrow this copy. It's, it was written quite a long time ago, so if you don't get one of the revised copies, it's written kind of in old-timey English, so it's hard uh, to understand, or it can be, especially for those of us who don't speak the Queen's English. But uh, I wanted to share just a couple of quotes uh, from this book. Humility is not something which we bring to God or he bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make a way for God to be all. And then Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. He was nothing that God might be all. Finally, believer, study the humility of Jesus. This is the secret, the hidden root of your redemption. Sink down into it more deeply day by day. Believe with your whole heart that Christ, whom God has given us, will work in us, making us what the Father wants us to be. So I challenge you as leaders, whether you're leading an entire church, your household, or maybe just your children, be credible, be approachable, and be humble in your leadership. Be self-disciplined and give of yourself sacrificially because our reward is the eternal glory of God and it's worth it. If you would, pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray tonight for our world leaders that you would guide them and they would lead in accordance with your will. 
seen tonight how you call us to be spiritual leaders set apart for your glory. We thank you for your perfect example, Lord, that we may clothe ourselves in humility towards you and towards each other. Where we fall short, Lord, we thank you for your grace and redemption. We thank you for the message of hope in the midst of adversity, that our reward is not in the temporary things of this world, but that we have an unfading crown of glory ahead of us because of what Christ has done for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.